0: This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. I'd like to welcome you to the Australian Museum and acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which the Australian Museum stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their Elders past, present and emerging, and to say, introduce myself now too. I'm a creative producer here at the museum. My name is Sue Saxon. So here we are at the final session of the 2019 Lunchtime Conversation series. All good things must come to an end, at least temporarily, and it's been terrific to share these inspiring sessions with you. From irrepressible raconteur Tom Keneally through to Francesca Kubila's deep engagement with the life and art of Albert Namajira last week, We've learned so much about this selection of extraordinary individuals who comprise the 100 treasures of the Australian Museum in our award-winning Westpac Long Gallery next door. So we close the series as we began with an Australian whose national and international accolades are almost too numerous to list. Come on in. (laughs) We're incredibly fortunate to welcome Glenn Merkitt, Australia's most celebrated architect, particularly as he's busier now than ever, as a regard for his poetic yet rational approach to environmentally sensitive sustainable designs deepens. But of course, it takes at least two to have a conversation, and I'd like to thank our 2019 series facilitators, our own director and CEO Kim McKay, Tracy Holmes, and Sandra Sully, for their expertise in drawing fascinating insights from our guests. Today, we're delighted that Sandra is joining us once again, and she's um, so passionate about people and their stories in her work as a Network 10 journalist and broadcaster, and also in the significant role she plays in the community, on the Hockey Australian Walkley Advisory Boards, as an ambassador and co-patron for Spinal Cure, Adoption Awareness, Do Something and Multiple Sclerosis. So stay tuned, subscribe to our newsletter, and I look forward to seeing you in 2020 for our next series. For now, we look forward to your questions at the end of the session, so please join me in welcoming Sandra Sully to introduce Glenn Merkitt to you. (laughs) Hello, everyone. It really is a
1: great privilege and honour to be here, um, especially for the finale um, with the legendary Glenn Merkitt. I can sense uh, a lot of devotees are in the room. Uh, this has been the biggest crowd that I've witnessed. So um, I trust you'll enjoy our In Conversation with the legend. Architect Glenn Murcutt is globally acclaimed for his environmentally sensitive, sustainable and quintessentially Australian designs. I find this fascinating when I was Getting some research on you, a sole practitioner who builds only in Australia, an international teacher and critic, he's been awarded every significant accolade, including the 1992 Alvar Alto Medal, the 2009 American Institute of Architects Gold Medal, and the Kenneth F. Brown Asia-Pacific Culture and Architecture Award in 2003. He is an Honorary Fellow of the American Institute of Architects, an International Fellow of the Royal Institute of British Architects. He was the founding president of the Australian Architecture Association and is chair of the Architecture Foundation Australia. He is the only Australian to have received the prestigious Pritzker Prize regarded as the Nobel Prize for Architecture. Ladies and gentlemen, please make him feel welcome, Glenn Merkitt.
2: Am I on? I'm on.
1: What an honour it is to meet you.
2: Well, Sandra, I see you every night, so... Uh, I, I, Clearly maybe, I'm not putting, putting maybe, you to sleep just yet. Maybe the honour is mine to, <laughs> to actually finally meet you.
1: Um, look, for someone who's grown up in Australia and, and uh, in the 60s, um, to have seen architecture uh, come to life in such beautiful design and, and I think we all know when we don't like something. ...don't we? We know what we don't like. How did you work out what you do like?
2: Well, most people don't like change. That's for, for the start. So That's true. M- most people... Um, let me tell you, in my early career... Uh, ...I had protests against my work. And uh, I had original drawings just torn up by the public... ...hating what I'd done. So, um, and I've had uh, court cases uh, against local authorities... Um, amounting to about uh, ten for myself and three for other people, and uh, fortunately of the ten, um, I've had it received my way. So uh, it's a really interesting area to be working because one is also working with the legal profession, and it's it's very important to argue the case for what one has designed and if one is totally committed to a way of thinking then that can be articulated quite well.
1: So you found your voice in needing to articulate that and sold your vision?
2: Yes. um, I'm very determined um, needless to say. Um, uh, I I know when something is reasonable I know when I'm doing something that is appropriate. Uh, I know when I'm pushing boundaries. And I think in this world um, to push boundaries is really important. To be able to see the potential that goes beyond the known. I love the whole process of discovery. I don't create, I discover. And the discovery is wonderful. Any work of architecture that exists, and I'm not talking about building, I'm talking about real architecture, it was there to be discovered. And any work that has the potential to be there is our role as architects is to discover it. And there are many solutions, and there are a few very good solutions.
1: And then we get to share your discovery.
2: I hope so. Um, some people might think uh, they'd prefer not to be sharing that, but uh, uh, on the whole, I think that the work. Let me say that I used to have these court cases up till about 10 years ago. Now, it's either I have compromised terribly in the last 10 years or counsel has got better. <laughs>
1: You know what I found really interesting when I was reading up about you... ...is um, you grew up in Manly, in a noisy, vibrant household... ...with four siblings and seven pianos. Mm. So what impact did this have on your decision to become a soul practitioner?
2: (laughs) Well, um, uh, I have two brothers and two sisters. Uh, One brother uh, is a really fine classical musician... Did his licentiate in London and his amos A in Australia. I completed uh, my seventh grade and started studying my amos A, uh, when I started architecture. And after I got into the university, uh, my father said to me, Look, son, when I was your age, I was swapping fish hooks for coconuts in the malaria infested swamps of Papua New Guinea living on the smell of an oily rag. Now it's I've looked after you for 18 years, you're on your own, you pay your own way to university and the only way to do that is to do it at night time and get a job during the daytime. And that was wonderful in a way, it was tough going, yeah. but it meant that I was able to support myself to a great extent, still living at home, that was very important. But the seven pianos, it was rather like a conservatorium of music um, with huge amount of noise and here I was doing my course at night time, getting home at 10 o'clock, having dinner, then working for two hours, then be up at work the next day at 9 o'clock in the morning and that would happen four nights a week, Thursday afternoon and in third year was Saturday. So. I needed some level of peace. I felt, <laughs> but but Serenity. with the pianos going, and one sister who loved Teresa Brewer, um, the screaming of Teresa Brewer at the radio, and and the concerto's downstairs, it was very difficult. But what it taught me was the was to be able to concentrate in spite of all the distractions around me. Very very deep concentration, and. It's a case of entering that state of reverie, that state of between sleeping and waking and cutting out a whole lot of the extraneous things. It was a very good discipline.
1: I was going to say, did teach you discipline to find yeah. the space that you needed yeah. to operate in? Well,
2: we, we were taught discipline, uh, I can tell you. Um, my father, let me tell you, was a professional father. Um, he wasn't an ordinary father, he was professional. And he had us in, in sport, for example. And we, we were in swimming uh, and we were in football. But he said, you're also in this country, I believe you need the arts as well as being good at sport. Now, we were good at sport, but my younger brother, again, this musician, was Australian 12- and 13-year-old swimming champion, national swimming champion. And my father taught us. And we grew up with, with a swimming pool. It was covered. Uh, it was, we could swim throughout the year, had big pipes laid out on the side. And we would be up in, in summertime at 5.30 in the morning, a glass of orange juice, a run down to Clontarf Baths, a half-mile swim, a 100-meter dash, run home half an hour music practice, wash up, I, wash up our dishes and I, uh, my task was to clean the bathroom and then walk two kilometres to school. This was every day. This it is why was, you're
1: so spry at 83.
2: It, it was phenomenal. but You either went under or you coped. <laughs> <laughs> and I just coped. And then it, my father, who was in his own business, stopped at 3.15, picked us up after school, down to Manly Swimming Club, uh, half mile swim, a hundred metre dash, break, break the minute, uh, or you'll have to do it again. And <laughs> home, half I'm an hour music already. practice, homework, dinner, and at that stage, bed. Now you can imagine, you fell into girlfriends it. and boyfriends were not in the picture. <laughs> we were so exhausted.
1: <laughs> well, that's your time in Manly, but you're actually born in London, and your family moved to Papua New Guinea, but on the way, you were actually born on the way to your parents going to the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Mm. Now we're talking the Berlin Olympics, which yes. is
2: that's a long time ago. Before most of the people weren't born here. Uh, so we're talking well the some time. Some
1: some we're talking the time of Hitler and, yep. and Jesse Owens. We were talking yes. earlier. Yes. Um, your, your parents have marvelous recollections of of that time in particular. Yeah. You were clearly too young. Yeah. And then you came back to PNG. Quite mm. the quite the contrast. Um, to living in London, and mm-hmm. then you had the order to evacuate. Yes, um,
2: 1941. 1941. Uh, be, the, the, my mother became. My father was in all sorts of things. From uh, shoemaking in the beginning, then building a, a yacht for himself um, together with Errol Flynn to sail to the United States. As you um, do. In you like do. Flynn. That's right. And uh, uh, it was sabotaged because Flynn, as you know, uh, was not uh, so ethical at times. Quite the rank on Yeah. And he owed money. So th- the boat was sunk. Uh, it lay, lays uh, today at the bottom of Port Moresby Harbour. And then my father went off t- to start up the clinky pine uh, industry. For every pine tree he cut, he planted two... Um, and then f- discovered alluvial gold. And it was from the s- discovery of the alluvial gold that allowed my parents to go to the Berlin Olympics. My mother knew she was pregnant at the time. She knew she'd have me on the way somewhere. It could have been in Paris, it could have been in London or it could have been in Berlin. Uh, it was fortunate it probably wasn't in Berlin. Um, and Hitler was absolutely at... A, a, Rising to this peak, and my father and mother talked about it. It was an extraordinary time in Germany, and uh, I remember my dad describing friends that um, were German in New Guinea. Because, as you know, uh, the the um, western, uh, the eastern part of New Guinea was uh, German. Uh, territory and after the First World it became a mandated territory to Australia and so the Germans that lived in uh, in the eastern part of New Guinea decided to go back to Germany after their experience in the First World War uh, where they were all put into into camps and uh, met them in G- Germany my friends and my father said what's going on in this country and our friend Frank Eisenberg said shh You don't know who's listening. It is a very dangerous place to be. And so it was a very, very frightening time. Then we returned to New Guinea uh, and in 19... That was 1936. In 1941, uh, we had uh, to get out quickly. Uh, The the Japanese had arrived uh, in in parts of New Guinea. They were bombing uh, Port Moresby and we had to move rapidly based on a scorched earth policy. What so, does that mean exactly? Well, a scorched earth policy is you cannot leave any infrastructure. So we had to blow our house up. We had to blow up our water systems, blow up our small swimming pool. The whole thing was quite terrifying. And then very quickly from Surprise Creek get a plane out to Rabaul where we met a ship that was all camouflaged. It was unbelievable. I remember Now I remember this very clearly. And we, as, as we came down at night time, all the lights had to be out. We were told the Japanese submarines were in the in the um, uh, Barrier Reef a- area and between the Barrier Reef and Papua New Guinea and they are attacking passenger ships. So it was a terrifying experience coming to Sydney. But what a contrast of coming from the jungles of, of New Guinea to suburban Manly where in New Guinea we had aircraft to deliver the mail which sounded normal but there was a gypsy moth where the co-pilot would throw the mail out of the <laughs> out, of, out of the plane on a big tail that would sit on top of the kunai grass and I remember this uh, and the, uh, the the kids that looked after us, they were only 15, 14 and 15 year old kids, Minja, Asika, Wallon and Quack and we all, they, they spoke pigeon that's all I spoke was pigeon English, a fantastic time of my childhood. It was an extraordinary time being raised by my family as well as my extended family, these four young Papua New Guineans was a remarkable thing and it was a huge loss when I came to Sydney when everybody was white, whereas where I lived everybody was black and so where I lived was all forest and where I came to was no forest, just a few trees. It was an amazing contrast and the postman, instead of coming by an aeroplane, had a had a uh, bag on his back. Uh, it was ext- the contrasts were phenomenal,
1: but hugely significant and influential in shaping you mm. and your journey.
2: Yeah, um, what it did was, uh, I was terrified that my father had destroyed. Uh, parts of New Guinea, uh, particularly in the gold mining, which can be a devastating activity. But I went back there 30 years ago when I was uh, just under 50, and uh, I have to say that it was in beautiful condition. Um, The the river was perfectly good, there was no sign, and I realised that alluvial gold, when being extracted carefully, does very little damage. It's, it's extraordinary. Now, the influence was that care my father took of the environment. When we came to Sydney, he had invested from the money he made in gold. I might add, no tax in those days for gold. All you earned was clear money. And at five and six thousand pounds a year, uh, income tax free, where the best. Blocks of land at Clontarth were 50 pounds. Uh, it meant that you could buy many blocks of land. And coming to Sydney, my father got these to these sites and started restoring them. And so he would propagate Angofra costatas, which was fantastic. Melaleucas, the different types of Calacoma, And we would steal soil from adjacent properties just below the, the septic tanks, where the nutrients had been lifted so high that it was starting to kill plants, so he propagated these plants, putting them in the oven, firing the seeds, and then planting them. And the beautiful thing is that they all grew to about a tube stock size. He put them; he had them in a, in a little pot, and he put a botanical name on these plants, and then. At night time we'd go back to exactly where the soil was that we'd taken and he put it back into that soil where it was taken. And if you look at the hillside at Clontaft now, in the gully area from Cabbage from from the the, the 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 beach at Cabbage Tree Bay, you'll see the whole hillside filled with Angophra costata, And we planted all those. Um, they were from the seed seeds there, but it was just a wonderful thing to be doing. And instead of planting all the exotic plants, he reinforced the planting of native plants in the 19, uh, 19, late 40s, 1947, 48, 49, 1950, which was an extraordinary thing. So the influence of New Guinea coming to the environment, predicting the environment in New Guinea, the contrast, these, all these contrasts are very important. You see, you learn to see one's own country more clearly by going away from it, and I've done that many times since, because it allows one to experience and perceive the beauty of one's own land.
1: Now, I think in the times since uh, you talked about your father, we all have a, a gratitude to our parents and and the values they instill in us, but. ...I sense with you you have a great respect for your father's practicality... ...as well as his love for the environment. Mm. He gave you a a deep inner strength to appreciate it all before you.
2: Yes, well that's very true. Again, part of that discipline meant that um, during school holidays... ...instead of going to the beach and like every other kid and having girlfriends... um, It had to be into the factory doing joinery. And so I learnt to make all the types of windows, box frame, this is from age 13 on, uh, box frame windows, casement windows, uh, every type of window you could imagine. And uh, also I learnt the whole business of trade in carpentry. I built our house with my father, together with my younger brother. We bent the reinforcing. We mixed the concrete. We laid the concrete. We put the steel on chairs. We did it all. And we built all the trusses in the factory. So I learnt the process of construction from the age of 13 to the age of 18 when I started university. So when I entered university, I had a very good Rounded experience in construction, um, in from bricklaying to s- steel making, and that allowed me then to b- start to build myself racing sailing boats, and so as you do, uh, as you do, um,
1: but a fabulous foundation for architecture. It's fantastic. And Just by default, this was your upbringing,
2: and and well, let me say this as well. Uh, he saw that I I loved drawing. He saw that I loved buildings, and so he had been. Uh, ..receiving architectural record, architectural forum uh, from the United States. Uh, you devour? H- which you Which I didn't devour. He put in front of me and he said, ''This is a really important building. Read this, son. Uh, th- this will give you some insight into the work of Mies van der Rohe.'' And I'd read it and uh, he'd then get me and I'd have to answer questions. And if I didn't get the answers right... Son, read it again until you get the answers right. You got to understand the principles. There's no good looking at the d- building as a as an envelope. Look at the principles underlying that design, so that you understand the rational background to it. That's really important. So I did, and so I I was taught um, the, the 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 rudimentary elements of architecture before I started.
1: Before before you even realised you wanted to be an architect.
2: Well, I was guided into it in many ways. But I didn't, I didn't refuse the idea because I thought it was pretty good because he used to say to me, look, you're going to be 50% inside doing drawings and working and 50% on site. What occupation gives you inside, outside like that? And it's creative. He sold it to you. He sold it to me very well. And I'm very pleased, I might add.
1: So you began part-time studies in architecture at the University of Technology in 1956... Mm-hmm. ...where building construction teacher Noel Beasley took a novel approach to the subject. Why did looking at continuity in nature appeal so much to you? I think that's a daft question given what you've already told us. Yes. But, but it did really appeal to you. It was
2: really important because in first year it was like this room here... ...and down the middle there all of you went to one of the teachers... ...and all of that went to Noel Beasley. And all of those group had to do building construction which included a two-storey house that was brick from here and it had to be documented in the three terms, three 13-week terms. Bailey said to us, that's what we required, we'll do that in one term, 13 weeks. You can get it all done, I'm going to give you other things. And the first subject will be continuity in nature, discuss. So we had to look and understand why, for example, a grass piece of grass stood up. How does the how does the um, uh, Morton Bay fig cantilever so far, and what does it do when it gets beyond that? It sends down aerial roots to support the branches, and and how does a how does a spider web spun, and how does it work? Uh, there are several threads that come from a spider and the 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 web is absolutely fantastic and the dimension of space is the distance between the spider's legs and it can spin uh uh, from its back out and that gives you this the first thread goes out and then other threads go out and it starts to connect these up and then it starts and starts to move around it, which is just fantastic now this was continuity in nature in the whole and then we had to draw do do sheets and sheets and sheets of drawings of showing continuity in nature. Then, second term came, we thought, what's coming next? He wouldn't tell us. Having understood continuity in nature, discussed the relationship of the built environment in structures, relying on continuity in nature. So, all of a sudden, we went to aircraft wings. Why does an aircraft wing flap? Why does not it stiff? because because the flapping allows the, the forces in the, the material to take up the energy that's being thrust on it to move and it doesn't break, which is the same as the Morton Bay fig and trees that move out. And it's why you allow in sailing wind to spill from the sail before you start to move off into power. Um, they're all these same sorts of principles. Then we, we, we looked at the spider's web and we looked at catenary curves and bridges I mean, it was fantastic. It
1: sounds to me like he really exploded your sense of curiosity.
2: Ah, oh, look, curiosity is a really primary aspect of not our being. human being. It is really primary. Curiosity not only killed the cat but allowed us to carry on and discover. And curiosity gives you the background principles to pursue and discover that is something that's really important I love that
1: you did go on to fail a subject at university on to you went to went on to fail a subject at university yes which was called sunshine and shade yeah how was that a turning point in your future thinking Mm. Um, given you just come out of uh, continuity in nature. yeah Sure. How did you move on to fail Sunshine and Shade?
2: I don't know how that happened. Uh, But R.O. Phillips saw it reasonable to fail me. Uh, And I was the only one in the year that failed in Sunshine and Shade. And I couldn't believe this. I mean, there was more than Sunshine and Shade. There was all about looking at black bodies and reflective bodies and heat gain and heat reflection and all those other things. I wasn't bad at it. And... I don't know how I failed. It may well have been a mistake. I don't know. Um, But I repeated by carrying carrying it together with all my next year's subjects. So I didn't have to repeat the year. I just had to repeat the subject. And I did very well the next time, extraordinarily well. So who knows? But it reinforced for me the importance of one aspect of design. Now, we talk about sustainability today. I don't talk much about sustainability at all, but I talk about responsibility. Sustainability is part of responsibility. It's responsibility to the planet, it's responsibility to the site, it's responsibility to the client, it's responsibility to the materials. These are really important areas in architecture. It's about responsibility that I have found it much more important than sustainability. Look, we shouldn't even be talking about sustainability. It should be an automatic part of our thinking. Now, we can't be 100% clean. It's not possible. We're going to use glass. That's not sustainable, so, so easily to say it. If we use brickwork, initially it's not. But if you lay it in lime mortar, as for example, the alteration I did on my little semi detached cottage in Sydney, then you can take the bricks down, you can scrape it off with a bolster very quickly, and I cleaned them myself about uh, 13 years ago, uh, thousands of them. And the bricklayer reused every brick that I took down, added more lime to the mortar. And we lost nothing. So the principle of sustainability is one must put together buildings where possible so that they can be unstructured and rebuilt or materials reused so that we don't lose anything. And the house at Kempsey, the same thing occurred. It's all bolted together and we're able to unbolt it. The house down at Jamboree. It's all bolted together. We're able to unbolt and extend it and change. These are important aspects about the aspect of sustainability. But it's about responsibility more than sustainability. It's only one small aspect. Could you ever talk to our
1: polis about that? Talk to? Could you have a chat to our politicians about that?
2: Moving right along. Well, you know... (laughs) They change so often that you can't even get time to talk to them.
1: <laughs> well, sustainability aside, it's all, of course, about structure and form. And in the 50s and 60s, while studying, you are also working with modern architects like Neville Grusman and Ruth and Bill Lucas. Now, the latter designed the lightest, lightweight house of that time in Sydney. Yeah. What did you find extraordinary about that?
2: Well, the Bill Lucas and Ruth Lucas house at Castle Crag. Um, uh, in Neville Gruzman's office, there was Bill, uh, Ruth Lucas, Bill Lucas, then I sat and then John Moore and Neville Griezmann. That was our order in the room. And Bill and Ruth were designing this house, which was supported entirely on four columns, the whole house, and suspended above this beautiful site of, of Angophoras, Calicomas, uh, xantherias a whole lot of beautiful plants and a couple of fantastic rocks. And these columns came around the rocks. So the rocks became part of the landscape of the courtyard. Now, today's requirements on thermal performance would not allow this house. One is required to have far greater thermal mass and the thermal mass that's protected. Uh, so a reverse brick veneer construction can be quite a, can be really appropriate in certain parts. Uh, it's certainly hot arid and, and even Sydney the reverse brick veneer is a wonderful way of doing it. And my houses they go further north come off the ground and as they go further south so they bear on the ground. And it's related to climatic conditions.
1: So it was a really fascinating experience for you.
2: Look, Bill and Ruth were absolutely remarkable teachers, as was Neville Gruzman. I know Neville was a very difficult boss, but he was a very good one. He took interest in my studies. Uh, I was his first first first-year student uh, working in the office, so he took upon himself to spend time with me to discuss architecture and discuss everything that he was designing. And Bill did the same thing and Ruth did the same thing. So I had a really extraordinary uh, e- extraordinary time. And when you combine that with some of the teachers at the University of Technology, uh, like, like Noel Baisley and Peter Collar, this was an extraordinary time to be educated.
1: You talk about this house and this structure are relating to other significant buildings that you've experienced in years later in Paris. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us about that comparison and Mm. Um, what you found.
2: um, I received a travel grant which gave me a ticket to go around the world and a thousand dollars beside and I'd been in practice uh, by four years, I went into practice in, nine, in December 1969. This is my 50th year in practice. The greatest achievement in my 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 practice is I've survived 50 years um, in it as a sole practitioner. When I was told it wouldn't work, um, uh, it has worked. Um, the house of light, the Maison de Verre in Paris by uh, Pierre Chiraud and, and Bernard Bayvoit, a Dutchman, is the most remarkable building of 1926. Uh, it, it, it was a turning point for me because it showed that modern architecture, when practice having the, the not being a dogma, because it had become dogma, but it had an open end to it, it had that beautiful quality of discovery made me realise that this was a real potential direction. So discovery became the important thing. But what was also beautiful was the quality of light. There was that level of serenity in the building. It was so beautiful. And Lewis Barragan said, ''Any work of architecture,'' I quote, that is designed without serenity in mind is, in my view, a mistake. And when serenity possesses joy, it is ultimate. And this building had all of this. And that led me into realising the potential of discovery, creating, by the way, in thinking, has a slightly egotistical quality to it whereas discovery has no egotism discovery is a path of having to research to find it it's there you've got to find it it's like discovery in science or discovery in medicine there are factors that lead you to believing there's a path to understanding why it's so and architecture to me is no different So it takes out arrogance, it takes only into account the idea of vulnerability that if one has designed any work that is regarded as a good work, as an architect, all that does is to make all work that is subsequent to that work vulnerable and it's very easy to fall off the perch and I'm not going to fall off that perch. And that's because I'm a sole practitioner, I don't have to do things that are less than I'm capable of. My father gave me that view, that number of statements. He said, son, now that you're entering practice, you must remember to start off the way you would like to finish. And further, he said, as he thought about it, Six months later, when I was going into practice, remember now that you're entering practice that for every compromise you knowingly make in your work, now that's not about arrogance or doing something against the client, that is doing something less than you're capable of. Then he said, the result in the built work will represent the quality of your next client. It's a truism. So it's very easy for practice to start dropping down if the work doesn't hold up in its quality.
1: I found it extraordinary that you've always been a sole practitioner. I would have you know, you, you often presume there's architectural firms and, and you need you need that creative uh, jousting of ideas to, to end up with the final acclaimed prize or product. ...and yet you've been able to successfully negotiate the space as a sole practitioner. That kind of been an easy
2: road. Uh, talk to my family about that. Um, I, it almost turned my late son uh, off being an architect. He saw how hard it was mm-hmm. to do things really properly. But let me say that there's a great joy in it as well because... You know, at a given point, you know when you've cracked that code. And it's very exciting. There's a sort of a, a, a vibration inside. And it's done when you're in a state of reverie. It's a very extraordinary experience. Now, I decided to become a soul practitioner. My father giving me warning, never take on partnership. Remain small if you can, and if you can do it yourself, go alone.
1: Why didn't he like partnership?
2: Um, He had had a a number of partnerships. Without exception, they had all failed, Uh, even to the point where, uh, as a builder, he would look up the weekend paper when he was looking for something and he'd see the partner he had, had, had... had their concrete mixer for sale privately, and uh, he said, "This is just impossible. I just can't. I can't deal this way." So he remained a sole businessman as a builder. Didn't have, but decided not to have any more partners in it. But what it gave me was great flexibility as well as commitment. Huge, 100% commitment, almost. But it gave me the flexibility that I could go and I was invited to give lectures in America and Canada and South America and Europe uh, and, and uh, Africa. And it, it, it was a, a marvellous flexibility and I was able to teach at Yale and UCLA and, and Washington University and St Louis all over the world to teach going away for ten days at a time coming back for six weeks go back again
1: but each time you traveled you saw
2: exactly and it took me away from my own land mm-hmm. that allowed me to see it every time freshen freshly it was so beautiful experience coming back and when that Qantas jet landed down on its sometimes three points sometimes two points sometimes one point landing uh It was a lovely feeling touching back to Sydney. I just love being at home. Can I ask you, when Mm. I
1: fly into Sydney, we've all got our favourite view out the window. Yeah. I love seeing the red roofs and I love seeing the backyard pools. At the right time of year, I love seeing jacaranda everywhere. What's your favourite view as you fly into
2: Sydney? Um, Well, it probably is... uh, Around about springtime,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and to see the flowering plants is just marvelous. Um, a little later in the year, flying in around about uh, late November up to about Christmas time, all the Angophora costata in flower. And remember, the Angophora costata has one of the most highly perfumed, honey like. Sense you'll ever get. Put your nose into an costata flowers. I'm going to have to go back and look this up
1: (laughs) because I think (laughs) I'm the only person in this room that can't (laughs) visualise this plant. Am I alone? I am alone. Oh gosh, okay. Okay. I'm feeling terrible. Look, it's
2: known as the the Sydney apple gum or something like that. I'll know it when I see it. it's, It's a beautiful pink bark it's almost flesh-like it's almost human-like it's a tree that grows in a, a crevice in a rock will send a root into the rock and survive and when the water dries up the end of that branch will die and shoot out again and so the branches are all over the place they are so beautiful they are the most magnificent tree you'll ever find in the world they are beautiful
1: there's a lesson for me isn't there um, now, no architect can operate without a good client. That's what role right. does the client play... Yes. In, ..in your
2: world? Yeah. My father again gave me Mies van der Rohe's quote. With every good building, there was a very, very, very good client. And a good client is not a client that gives you the run, uh, let you do what you want. A good client can be very tough. A good client... For example, I had one client um, for the house at Mount Wilson. Uh, clients, I might say, um, I can give you the name, is Geelam and Sheila Simpson-Lee uh, amongst the best clients I've ever had, amongst the probably the toughest client I've ever had. Um, it was really difficult. Every design decision was a challenge. Everyone. And at the end of the job, he came on every site visit with me. Towards the end, I was really like a son to him. <laughs> they didn't have children. And he'd walk, he's up to my shoulder, of, of a Chinese background, uh, first generation born Australian. And arm in arm, he'd walk with me and just say, this is just so wonderful i just love it and i love coming on these site visits with you anyway my builder rang up towards the end when we were putting in the firefighting pond and he said to me look we can increase this by a couple of meters and we can go down another three quarters of a meter because the rock is very soft and we can get We've got good bearing, I've tested it. it's going down, the rock is bedrock and we'll get better volume. I said, OK, uh, Tony, a Dutchman, beautiful, wonderful Dutch builder, I said, I'll come up and check it. I went up said, yes, let's go ahead. Now, this was, this was on the Monday. By the Wednesday or the Thursday site visit, Jilin came up with me and he looked at me and he said, this water element is longer. And if I might be right, it's deeper. How did that happen? You didn't discuss it with me. At this stage, I was so tired of the discussion about every design element.
1: (laughs) That should be your domain.
2: So I said to Gilliam, do you like it? He said, I love it. I said, well, that's all we need. Late I said to him, why did we have so many arguments? Well, he was... The dean of economics at Sydney University, retired.
1: Frustrated architect, clearly. And
2: frustrated architect. He loved architecture. He could draw perspectives. He was fantastic. And he said, when we have economic theory, we put it up and we all argue it out. And when you put up a, a design element, I put up the argument and some of them fell over for you. And others didn't fall over and I knew when they didn't fall over you were very serious and when they did fall over you weren't quite as serious. Well, I said that wasn't quite the case. I gave up on some things that I really would have liked but I got so tired, Gillum. I was really tired. He said, I just wanted to get the best out of you. That's the way I got the best out of you.
1: I think what he worked out was he wanted to get inside your head and the only way he could do it was to commission you to build his house.
2: Well he got Arthur Baldwinson, together with Sheila, his wife, who was a wonderful pinch-potter, to have them design their first house at, at uh, Warunga. a beautiful house. And when he wrote to me, he, he wrote this beautiful many-page letter to explain why I should take him on and Sheila as clients. And it was an extraordinary letter. And then when I arrived, he said to me, almost within the first 20 minutes, why should I be doing this house? And I thought, so Christ almighty, um, you've asked me to do it. You've told me why I should take you on. Now you're asking me why you should do it. And I thought, this is a really weird question. I've never been (laughs) asked by a client who, who asked me to design a house, why should I do it? I I thought about it and I said, Geelynn, the only reason I think there's work to do it is that we make it worthwhile doing. He said, that's what I wanted to hear.
1: As a sole practitioner and working in so many different locations, how do you find that clutch of of tradespeople and building expertise wherever you are um, that are going to deliver the exacting... Detail yeah. that you need. Yeah, it,
2: it can be difficult, but very often when, for example, in uh, houses in Kangaroo Valley and Jamboree, in both places, I was able to uh, have the client determine who were the best builders. So I'd go and interview them. I was able to, able to uh, see that they were fantastic. I saw their work. And that allowed me to actually be able to work with them in a beautiful way. And so I've had found builders in in Gosford, uh, in Newcastle, in Kempsey, in the southern region, in Kangaroo Valley, in in northern territory, everywhere. I found builders and the lovely thing is they the builders bring their families down to see what they're building, which is With you? Yes. Yes. yes which is wonderful. Mm. So they're so proud of the work. They love doing it, which is a nice thing.
1: Now, you're busier than ever, Glenn. currently designing the 2019 M Pavilion mm-hmm. opposite the National Gallery of Victoria. What sort of opportunities does a commission like that
2: provide for you? Yes, well, you may know of the wonderful Naomi Milgram from Melbourne. Uh, Naomi is a great philanthropist and uh, she puts up money every year uh, for the last five years and for two more to go to design a pavilion for cultural events now we discussed in the beginning this issue of designing a pavilion and i said in so doing one must go out and experiment now in french Uh, the pavilion is related to the papillon, uh, which is the butterfly. Um, And in English uh, background, it's the tent. And so it's almost not there. The butterfly is almost not there. Uh, The tent is almost not there. So I've designed a building that I can't talk too much about because it's not going to be released, the design, until July, August... Uh, period. And so it's a very light building. I'm dealing with materials I've never worked with in my life before. There's a lot of experimentation in it for me. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to being it being a, a pavilion that's going to allow the performance of many activities that addresses the river that addresses the gardens and addresses the city and it also addresses the climatic conditions where the southern side will have systems that come down to protect it against the winds from the south that can turn cold um, and in summertime so that the sun is not going to come into the building where the, where the performances will take place um, and in wintertime when it moves because the building will move to another final place where it's be gifted to some organisation and so I will be working with Naomi for the siting and selection so that the building is oriented properly uh, towards the climatic conditions of Victoria.
1: You're a man of mystery. That's not fair to tease us like that. We can't uh, wait to see the designs. Well, we've no, only got to wait a few more weeks.
2: No, two to four weeks. Still. Two to four weeks. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Um, look, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm mindful of our time. I'm sure there's lots of questions in the audience. Would anyone like to ask Glenn a question or five? One up there. Yes.
2: Oh, thank you, Glenn. Um, a few years ago, I was in Germany and I met an architect and he said to me that Australia has got a very good reputation for producing great architecture. He hadn't been here. Um, my, My question is if we have such an abundance of talent and we're one of the richest countries in the world, why is architecture in Sydney so ugly? (laughs) <laughs> That's a, that was a collective a, question, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah, collective question. Um,
1: would, would you describe uh, it, it as ugly?
2: Um, a, a lot of it is. Yeah. Not all
1: of it, not
2: all No, 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 not all of it. Uh, some, some of it is actually very, very good. Now, you may not think so, but um, the work of the late Harry Seidler there's some work that he's done that is very, very good. The work of Sidney Anker is very, very good. Arthur Baldwinson, Bill Lucas, Neville Gruzman. There are a whole lot of very good architects. But the real problem, I can tell you why it is, um, the architect doesn't own the land. I go back to Meese. Vanderoa, with every good building there was a very good client. And if the architect's client is a developer with a value system that is only about making money, then you get what you pay for. And there are, are too many buildings where the value system is not that good. A younger architect in this city, who I believe is doing really fine work, is Angelo Kandileppis. He's only 50 and doing some very fine work in the city. Um, But it goes back to the client base. Angelo, by his name, is Greek, and the developer he's working with, uh, his background is Greek. And together they have a value system that wants to do very good work. And if the City Council then approves that work, you will get a good building. On the other hand, if the authorities don't allow it and refuse it, you've got problems. So you've got to have all the way along the line a, a group of people who understand the quality of the work and who can approve it and will approve it. And then it's got to be built by the developer very well. And the real issue, it is about the the developer. For example, Angelo, Wendy Lewin and I were doing a project out western suburbs. And we've believed that we're having to do some very good new quality, good quality, new type housing. And the developer finally said, I can make more money. Not that he wasn't going to make enough money, but I can make more money in the the same way as everybody everywhere else. Now it is my view that work going on in some of this mass housing is worse. Than the worst buildings you'd speak about in Sydney, I think some of it is frankly, I I would die living in that environment. I would my my spirit would be starved, my my intellect would be ending up in poverty. I just could not possibly possibly live there. I, I just feel so sorry for what's happening, and the government has the that has the responsibility to make sure the designs are better.
1: Don't you think, Glenn, in Sydney, though, part of the problem is there are too many councils? (laughs) Let's not get into the politics of it, but with a brother that's a town planner, you know, you understand that every council has its own...
2: Uh, Development control plan.
1: Correct. And there's there's so many development control plans that compete with each other... Yeah. ..that sit side by side. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and remember... The control plans are supposed to stop the worst. Correct. But they stop the best and don't stop the worst. Mm. That is the problem. And it's much easier to approve something that's not going to be challenging, that's going to be mediocre. That's very easy. You know, mediocrity lies at the bottom of the mainstream. And unless we get a client base that says no to these this housing, you, the clients, are just as, just as, that fault at this, because the clients are not, the clients are still buying these things. If you didn't buy them, they wouldn't get built. They'd have to start to improve, or the government legislation would have to make them improve. Now, if I was in control, I would make every site smaller, I would make every house wall join the other house wall like terrace houses because thermal performance is a lot better. You have to design courtyards which are so much more responsive to Australian conditions in a a medium density um, environment. There are a whole lot of requirements that are necessary to be legislated so that it prevents this single house on a single block of land. If you think of a block of land like that and one house like that, now change the principle and put the house around, there and that the courtyard. So we can reduce that whole block so much and produce a beautiful courtyard. As Lewis Barragan said again, "I will take ten beautiful. I'll take ten views to every one beautiful courtyard." That was his value, and a beautiful courtyard gives you life. Remember, the view is largely a status symbol. It's wonderful for selling wonderful for buying, and then be there for five years, you start to become numb.
1: You also can't live in the view, but you can live in the courtyard.
2: Absolutely right. You look at the view, so that's about prospect. Prospect can be important, but refuge is even more important. But to contain both, prospect and refuge, is a beginning of thinking in architecture.
1: We had a question down here.
3: Thank you. That was amazing. Your whole talk was amazing. Um, You've answered some of my question, but I was reading this morning in the newspaper that five out of six of our houses that are built are not meeting energy standards. And, And that's an open thing. They're not disputing that. And you've answered a lot of it by saying
1: people should be more responsible. But But surely surely that's got to be led by the the local council who approved yeah, this stuff.
3: Exactly. Exactly. In my area where I live, these monstrosities are going up. Um, where eaves are nearly touching. And they're so yep. they're so ugly. They're so ugly. Mm. And you know I I moved into my little cottage and the first thing I did was plant about fifty Sausageum trees. Well, your neighbours will love you. Well, the neighbours. There were so few trees around.
2: Did you know that sixty percent of the population don't like trees?
3: I do know that I, because I even have friends who got moved into a new house, and the first thing they said was, "Oh, that tree has to go." I was beside myself.
1: Mm. Anyway, because I, it's going to diminish a the view they really look at. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Anyone else have any, any questions? Yes.
2: It's been very entertaining um, mm. listening to you talk about your career and ideas. And while that's been happening, we've been seeing some great photographs too. It's a lovely collection. And at the end is a mosque. Would you like to just tell us a little bit about the client and the, mm. the issues there where it is? Yeah. Well... Um, What an amazing project to be given. Now, this raises an issue related to what you're saying, is how does one achieve a client that is from the Islamic community when one has never done a mosque in one's life? Therein lies a really important issue for every client. It means that if the architect you're thinking about has not done the the type of project you're envisaging, that's the architect who's done good work in other fields, that's the architect you should be choosing, not the architect who's done 20 mosques. Um, It's very important because a good architect is able to take on basically any sort of project, research it, and be able to come up with something that may well be fresh. Now, I chaired the jury for His Highness the Aga Khan. Uh, I don't know, it might be 10 years ago. No, it's more than that. It's probably 50, 15 years ago. And the community down in Melbourne uh, at uh, Newport, Altona, uh, decided they wanted to select an architect uh, to do the mosque. And they said they wanted to get somebody who would give them a very, very good quality building. I got a phone call and I was totally surprised by this. And that they seemed really nice people. And uh, they said, we'd like to bring you down. Let's have a day together and discuss to see whether we can work together. Well, that first meeting was just wonderful. And we had a great Lebanese lunch and, and discussions. And then I went home on the plane with a big plate about this diameter of all Lebanese Lebanese goodies. They need baklava. Uh, um, huge amount of baklava. And the, the hostess said to me on the way back, What are you going to do with that? And I said, I've got to take it home. She said, How will you eat it all? And I said, I can't think we can. She said, Well we have distribute it on the air, on the plane. I said, Of course you can. So anybody who wanted to have some. So it was fantastic. It was an amazing day, I've got to say. Then we started, and I said, now look, I've got to be able to work with a local architect. Can you recommend somebody? And so they looked around, and they found there was a young architect by the name of Hakan Elevli from the Islamic community, who also, um, but was not Lebanese, he was Turkish, but he had made many friends from this community. So we discussed this, we, we met together. We went to the site. We discussed it, and this is f- f- just after the uh, um, after the after the first meeting. Now, the reason they came to me was they looked up the Aga Khan uh, website for winners of the award, and they noticed there was an Australian. Who chaired the jury? And they said to oh God, "This there's Australian. He can't be anti-Islamic. Let's give him a go. Let's have a look. See what he's done." So I don't have a website, but there's enough on there uh, for everybody else has put on um, some right, some wrong, um, uh, some credited correctly, some incorrected uh, incorrect, uh, and. Saw that I wasn't a bad architect, so they made contact with me, and uh, it was the most fantastic experience. It's one of the great experiences of my life to go through that with them. I had many meetings. For example, they wanted they wanted courtyards, they wanted domes, they wanted minarets, they wanted all the traditional things, and I said, Look, if I'm not going to, if you want the traditional things, I'm the wrong architect. I'm not going to be giving you a traditional building in this country because it represents a threat to the community. What we've got to do is have something that you recognise as a building for your faith and that the community recognises it's a building that belongs in this country. And I've got to try and walk between these, these realms. And so they started to understand and we got it to a certain point and we had a huge meeting, must have been 200, 300, 400 people there. And one guy said to me, where's the minaret? And I said, look, I'm not going to be designing a minaret. He said, but, it, but it's part of our culture. I said, okay, what's the minaret for? And I knew what it was for. I'd been to many mosques in, in the Arab world. And he said, well, it's for calling of prayers. I said, that's exactly right, I know that. So I said, give me the name of the person who's going to call the prayers. And this guy said, there's nobody going to call the prayers. Well, I said, what is it for? Well, you've got a minaret for calling of prayers and it's not for calling, what's it for? He said, I was just a symbol. But I said, we've got a crescent that's a symbol. Why would you have that? I said, it's obsolete. I said, we once had tails. Do we going to ask everybody to wear tails? And he looked at me and said, Oh, okay, well, all right. Then we've got now just the wall that comes up and then the minaret, the, the, the crescent on top. And they now are all calling it the most wonderful new form of minaret.
1: They could have asked a nun what was the habit.
2: Uh, that, well, yes, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, we we were able to eliminate the dome because I pointed out that the Great Mosque at Cordoba has a whole series of lanterns, different to what I've done, and these lanterns face north, south, east and west. The south have blue blue glass, the north have green glass, the east has yellow glass and the west has red glass. Blue represents the, the... Hereafter, as the ocean is its deepest, green represents the oasis. Yellow represents uh, the hereafter, the hereafter. Uh, it represents the great place that we all go to. And red represents on uh, the west represents blood which represents strength. Now they didn't know a thing about the symbolism of color, in the Islamic world. And I taught them entirely about the colour. But furthermore, I taught them that they could tell in their mosque the time of the year, the time of the day, by the light that came into the building. So that in summertime when the sun rises thirty degrees south of east, It's hitting the blue lanterns, the blue light. So there's a predominance of blue light, which is in summertime. And it sets 30 degrees south of west. Again, summertime. So it's the cool light in summer and it goes up to the green light in summertime. Uh, They're just coming in the cool light of the green as well. And some in the morning... For a period for yellow light, and some in the afternoon for the blue lights, for the red light. So you can tell as the sun moves through inside by the colour on the floor and the shadows of the, of the lanterns what time of the day it is. And in winter time, uh, the sun rises north of east. Not any blue at all comes in. So it's the warm light comes in. So you get the eastern yellow light coming in. And as I said earlier, it's the hereafter, which they refer to as paradise. That's paradise. Then the nature, and then the strength in wintertime. And the equinox due east, due west setting. So the colour renders inside time of day, time of year, and the traditions of the meaning of colour. So I believe in architecture one must solve the rational and the poetics. It's the junction of the rational and the poetics. And to discover that is the path, not a creation. It's the path to discovery.
1: Thank you so much for that question. I might have forgotten or missed it. And how much do we just love Glenn's answer? It was amazing. I'm going going to finish up with one final question if I could. Just quickly your advice for young architects starting their careers.
2: Oh yes, yes. Start off the way you would like to finish. Remember that for every compromise you knowingly make in your work, that will represent your next client. Don't give up. Recognise that the clients are often right and be able to listen. The most important thing is to listen and act upon that appropriately. I think it's so important to recognise that it's easy to give up. It is easy to put your tail between your legs when it comes to councils refusing something. Dig in when you know that it's reasonably okay. Dig in because you can do it. And to have that strength to carry it through and the strength. And remember that when you're doing site inspections with builders, don't go and look at where something has been done badly. Go and look where that person has done something beautifully and bring that person over and say, look at this, this is just so good. If you can keep that standard up all the way through, this will be wonderful as a, as a, as a complete work. And then as you're leaving, because you have seen something not as good, you call George over or Janet, whoever's on it. Women are coming into the building industry now and say, look, you don't have to say a thing, not a thing. And they say, get it fixed for you because they know. And if you go the other way around and say, look, mate, this is ratchet. (laughs) And, And this poor guy just feels And go over there afterwards and say, this this is fantastic, this is the standard. If you can keep that standard up, that'll be great. That poor guy will remember what you said first, not what you said second. The important thing is to give praise where it's been done well, because it brings out the best in people. And where it's not done well, just point to it. You don't have to say anything. And it will be done and at the end of it as i said earlier they these people the people working on the job will bring their families down to see the work which is fantastic thank you um,
1: ladies and gentlemen please let the marvelous van murk ao know how much we've enjoyed him today thank you.
0: this has been an australian museum podcast